0: I want to begin this morning with reading from the Gospel of Luke. This is from Luke chapter 12, beginning with verse 13. I'm reading from the New Jerusalem Bible translation, which may differ in small ways from a translation that you may be more used to, but it's a very good one. A man in the crowd said to him, Master, tell my brother to give me a share of our inheritance. He said to him, My friend, who appointed me your judge or the arbitrator of your claims? Then he said to them, Watch, and be on your guard against avarice of any kind, for life does not consist in possessions, even when someone has more than he needs. Then he told them a parable. There was once a rich man who, having had a good harvest from his land, thought to himself, What am I to do? I have not enough room to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I will do. I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones, And store all my grain and my goods in them. And I will say to my soul, My soul, you have plenty of good things laid by for many years to come. Take things easy, eat, drink, have a good time. But God said to him, Fool, this very night the demand will be made for your soul. And this hoard of yours, whose will it be then? So it is when someone stores up treasure for himself instead of becoming rich in the sight of God. Then he said to his disciples, that is why I am telling you not to worry about your life and what you are to eat, nor about your body and how you are to clothe it. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Think of the ravens, they do not sow or reap, they have no storehouses and no barns, yet God feeds them. And how much more you are worth than the birds? Can any of you, however much you worry, add a single cubit to your span of life? If a very small thing is beyond your powers, why worry about the rest? Think how the flowers grow they never have to spin or weave yet I assure you not even Solomon in all his royal robes was clothed like one of them now if that is how God clothes a flower which is growing wild today and is thrown into the furnace tomorrow how much more will he look after you you who have so little faith but you must not set your hearts on things to eat and things to drink nor must you worry it is the gentiles of this world who set their hearts on all these things your father well knows you need them now set your hearts on his kingdom and these other things will be given you as well there is no need to be afraid little flock for it has pleased your father to give you the kingdom I want to consider a number of variants on this basic theme the theme being not to worry it has I, mean, I am aware that satsangis like anybody else do a whole lot of worrying about, about their own spiritual progress or lack of it about what other people do about possible huge things that are going to happen all of these things I think that the attention is basically misplaced unless we take each thing that comes as it comes and be aware that what is asked of us is to respond to it in the way that the Master would have us respond. That is to say, what counts in anything is the way in which we deal with it. Because the things that happen are going to happen. This is what the story of the rich man in the barn What was wrong with that rich man, of course, was his misplaced attention. The problem was not that he had a whole bunch of things, because sometimes that happens. Sometimes we're successful. We do have them. But that he then made cosmic assumptions from that. He assumed, for example, that he was going to live long enough to enjoy them. And in fact, he was not, that is what made him a fool. Not that he had them, but that he assumed they were really his. And he was not up to dealing with them. We don't need to be afraid. Asanchi has said that being afraid is the greatest sin, and it's connected with this same idea. When we are afraid, it means we are not trusting. You know that the word that is habitually translated faith in the New Testament, in all the English versions, as far as I know, the Greek noun pistis really means a better translation is trust, okay? It is not so much that we have to have faith in God Faith in English tends to get mixed up with intellectual belief anyway. Do we believe the right things about him? Then we'll be saved. That's not the point at all. The point is, do we trust in him to take care of us? And Jesus says, and all the masters have said, that yes, this is what we need to do. In each thing that comes, okay, I have often told a story, and I will now tell it again, so any of you who have heard it too often can get bored <laughs> um, about how I, had, how I had a stroke about, I guess, eight years ago now. And uh, there was a period, I mean, it was a, a real thing, and there was a period during it when I was totally paralyzed on my left side for about, well, the total period of paralysis was 36 hours, but it did, um, much of that I was not completely paralyzed. But for several hours at the worst point, um, I couldn't move my left side at all including my left foot my left arm or the left side of my mouth or my left eye all of that was taken away from me and i i when i finally i mean i spent a lot of time denying it i did not want to believe that it happened and i i lay there in the hospital bed and the iv was in my left arm and i would I worked it so that I could flop my left arm around by manipulating my whole body. And I would think, see, I can move my left arm. I'm all right. And eventually, though, that became useless. And I I suddenly saw that I was paralyzed on my left side. And immediately along with that, you see, I also suddenly saw that I was going to be like that for the rest of my life. And when that happened, I lost it, and I I began to weep and to grieve. I did not want to be paralyzed. I will tell you, I did not want it, and I rejected it. And it was a very, very difficult few hours. But then, you know, the paralysis began to lift, and I began to get better. And by the end of that day... I had recovered about 90 percent of what I had had before. And it did, in fact, eventually it was 100 percent. And you can say that it was a miracle, and it very likely was. But the point is, when I saw the Master, he rebuked me, not for having the stroke, of course, which I had no control over whatsoever, and not for getting better, which he was very glad. He said to see but for the fact that at the moment when it was most important he said the way that he put it was you lost faith in the master and this is what he meant that I did not it's like what Jesus said here I did not remember At that point, when I needed to remember it most, that everything that comes to us, as Master Kripal once wrote me, is in my best spiritual interest. Hey, I mean, the stroke could have gone either way. I could have not recovered, or I could have recovered completely, or I could have recovered somewhere in between. That was not up to me to worry about. What was up to me to worry about was to keep my heart set on the kingdom of God and to remember that whatever came to me along the way was what was supposed to come. Now this seems difficult and plenty of people and I've told this story privately you know individually plenty of people have said that they didn't blame me and truthfully I don't blame myself because I couldn't do anything different at that time. But blame isn't the question. The question is, how do we make best use of that which is given to us? And the Master made it very plain to me that I did not make best use of the particular thing that was given to me at that particular moment. And when we spend our energies worrying, you see, this is the whole point, about what's going to happen to us, we miss the point. The point is that what happens to us is, it, I mean, it's no doubt in our karma, okay, we have, you know, what is in our fate karma is written there, and things like strokes and diseases and so forth, and when an individual leaves the body, all of these things are written in our fate from the beginning of our life span, but what is not written in our fate and what we have complete control over is how we respond to them, And if we spend, if our attention is misplaced and we think in terms of how we can avoid something or um, how we can mitigate or just that we don't want something the way that I did, then it isn't that we're committing any, any great sin on that. It is... That we're missing the point and i and i would in parenthetically like to point out here that the word for sin in the new testament is hamartia which means missing the point by the way what a sin is according to the the very structure the, ling- the linguistic structure of the new testament what sin is is missing the point Hamartiya comes from archery and it means to miss when you shoot an arrow and you don't hit the target the arrow goes somewhere else that's hamartiya and that's what sin is is a missing of the mark we don't hit the target Master Kripal has added another definition which is very comparable the two work together very well of sin as forgetting okay specifically forgetting of origin last night we talked about how what the value of the human soul is Yeah, we are children of god we come from his lap we are going back there we must live in the light of that understanding the way in which we deal with ourselves the way in which we deal with others, all has to be in the light of that understanding. And if we can remember that, then um, we will be in a state of not committing any sin. So it's important. Sometimes some words in English take on a loaded kind of connotation, which um, always carries with it sense of blame guilt etc and you know it isn't really like that we make mistakes we do wrong things we miss the point we forget everybody does the point is to stop doing those things the thing about missing the target is that if we keep trying to hit it someday we do thing about forgetting is if we keep trying to remember sooner or later we do remember just like the prodigal son whom we mentioned last night. At some point, he remembered who he was. he was. His father had plenty of money. Surely he could get a job as a hired hand with him. Surely he would do that much. And that thought brought him back. It's really exactly like that. And When he did come back, he got a, a hero's welcome, even though he was far from a hero. It's the same with us. The Master is overjoyed to see us. The destination itself kisses our feet, Sanchi said in the message we read last night. And the same idea is in the, in the bhajan we just sang also. And we are treated that way, although we haven't done anything to deserve that. That's the, the appropriate response because of who we are. And of course not just us and no one is an enemy everyone is your very own because as the Gurbani teaches the whole universe was created from one light there is no no one who is outside no one so all of that is um, Is of course part when we talk about these things all of that should be included along with it but the the worrying about what's going to happen and people do do it a great deal they do it satsangis do it other people do it right now it's very fashionable the millennium is ending and it's very fashionable for people to worry about what's going to happen with the new millennium. And I don't know what's going to happen, but I will tell you that whatever happens, what is what we are, must be concerned about is that we approach it in a state of remembrance. We deal with whatever happens from the point of view of the remembrance of God. We carry with us the constant and perpetual recognition that God is our father and our mother and that we love him and that he loves us and he will take care of us even if our body gets mangled in some way the fact is that that's only our body and what counts the connection of ourselves with him will remain intact this is what I forgot people and I you know I have made so many mistakes in the course of my life that I sometimes am ashamed to talk about them but you know it's very important that we understand that mistakes get made and that if we make them it's not the end of the world We can make a mistake, and as long as we're making it, it will definitely be in our way. But from the Master's point of view, once we stop, it stopped. There's an incident that happened to me very early on in my acquaintance with the Masters, which I've told many times, and which uh, is very minor, really. But you see, it was very major to me, and therefore it was a huge loomed very large in my in my understanding of how the master works. When back in nineteen sixty three, okay, in October October eleventh and twelfth, Master Kripal was at what became that day actually, St. Bani Ashram in New Hampshire. At the time that he arrived, it was St Bani Farm and Judith and I lived there with our kids and it was gonna be our place. By the time he left, it was Sant Ashram, and God knows what was going to happen. And he did, and we didn't, and that was great. But anyway, during that period, we left from there, and we proceeded. Next stop on the tour was the ashram in Vermont. And um, when we left there a couple of days later, We were heading back down to New Hampshire. Master was going to Hampton, New Hampshire, which is near the seacoast, where a disciple of his, the Baron von Blomberg, lived, who was very active in the World Fellowship of Religions. And we were going to the Baron's house, and the people who were driving cars were a little worried about the roads and they knew that I was a native New Englander and I had lived there in those parts all my life and had driven many times around Vermont and New Hampshire and Massachusetts too, for that matter. And they asked me if um, I would lead the way and I was overjoyed to lead the way. Oh boy, yeah. So I said, sure. And I had a pickup truck that time Judith and the children were not with me they were in some other vehicle do you remember what vehicle you were in a car yeah well okay <laughs> <laughs> anyway I forget why we had two vehicles up there but we did anyway so I drove the pickup truck down uh, and led the way and About 10 miles away from the Vermont Ashram, I made a wrong turn, and I didn't realize it. And we were heading actually north on Route 14 instead of south, and um, I was driving along very happily. I believe that Betty Shiflet, whom some of you may remember, uh, was in the truck with me at the time and thinking about oh, how great it was that I was leading the way and what a great privilege that was and the cars came up from behind me and I suddenly realized something was wrong and uh, we all stopped and they got out and said, I, I think uh, you made a wrong turn and I looked at the map and oh wow, yeah that I saw I had made a wrong turn, oh gosh. So I said, oh, I, you know, I apologized all over the place. And they was fine with them, but I wasn't going to lead the way anymore. I mean, <laughs> they got back in, and now I was at the tail end of the party. <laughs> Everyone turned around, and the first was last, as it <laughs> happened. Anyway, we drove on down, and we stopped in in um, Boscawine, New Hampshire, which is... Not very far from St. Bonnie For a lunch, there was a Howard Johnson's there then, which is not there now. And uh, everybody, about six cars worth, I think, of people, went in and had lunch. And uh, Master went in with us, and he ate a little bit, but he didn't stay very long, and he went out. And I. I went out. I was very much on my mind, the mistake that I had made. I really wanted to to tell him how bad I felt because i, I really, it was my I was given the responsibility of leading the Lord of the Universe, and I had blown it. This is the way I felt. I had wasted his time. I had taken him in the wrong way, and so forth. And he was walking by himself way off in the corner of the parking lot. His hands were behind his back and he was pacing slowly. And I walked over to him and he saw me and he didn't uh, exhibit much of a reaction. He saw me, he stopped, he listened politely and I said, Master, I I just want to apologize. I'm I'm so sorry for what happened. And he looked at me absolutely blankly. What happened? I said, well, the, the Losing your, the way, uh, going the wrong direction up in Vermont. He still didn't know what I was talking about. And I finally explained sufficiently so that it's like an enormous light dawned on, his, on him. And his, he just said, oh, that's all right. And that was all. And he kept on. And I suddenly saw that from his point of view, the whole thing had ended What it ended. I mean, naturally, he didn't want to go in the wrong direction, but there it was. Uh, It was fixed. It was over. It no longer existed as far as he was concerned. It was nowhere near his thought. So I would say that that was a very important thing to me because it taught me about the Master and forgiveness. You know, it was a small thing. It was huge to me. He totally forgave me. And I saw how he worked that way, something, by the way, that I had occasion to see over and over again with him and with Sanchi also. And I um, (coughs) will only say that we cannot exaggerate the Master's willingness and his ability to forgive. He is a forgiver and forget yeah and of course that's exactly what he had done he had totally forgotten that it had happened his forgetting is huge and we can you know trust in that so i i would mistakes are made we do miss the point we forget master can rebuke us i mean i have been rebuked many times by both master kripal and by sanji for mistakes that I should have known better mistakes that any of you would say yes he should have known better but I didn't or if I did I had forgotten he has rebuked me but it was never held against me once I realized it then I was exactly the same as before so it's this is a a major part too of why we should not be afraid. Another thing about mistakes is that Sanji has said, the only people who don't make mistakes are the ones who don't do anything. So we can remember that if we make mistakes, that the only way to not make mistakes is to do absolutely nothing. And that's not a viable option for a satsangi or for anyone else really. Anyway, that is one thing okay the way in which we relate to possible happenings I mean we don't know what's going to happen and prophets sometimes correctly prophesy and sometimes they don't and sometimes as we know from the Bible for example in the book of Jonah when Jonah was sent out to prophesy to the Ninevites about a forthcoming judgment and they all repented and God didn't judge them. Now Jonah got angry because God isn't doing what he said. He makes him look foolish. It's more important to destroy the city so that Jonah's reputation as a correct prophet would be maintained than to be grateful that all of these people, and as God said when he, when he rebuked him for it, which he did afterwards, a lot of animals too. God said, should you not be grateful that all these people were saved, not to mention the animals? They would all have died. So the point is that things change sometimes. The the will is there. In India the word is Maj, M A U J. And I don't know how many times Papu has said to me over the years, Russell G, the Maj has changed. Okay? Something was scheduled to happen but the will was different and um, I remember Master Singh in 1966 was scheduled to go to Europe. There was a a, um, a, a, a regional meeting of the World Fellowship of Religions, a a European regional conference which the Baron von Blomberg had arranged, had worked very hard to set up. And Master was supposed to go to it and uh, he didn't go and um, Millie Prendergast was in India at that time and she told me that Master was on the phone with the Baron and he had no reason. He said, look, sometimes orders are changed at the last minute. He said, I am under orders and orders can change at the last minute. That was what he said. And later Master referred to that in one of his circulars, he said, well, I had a mind to go to Europe, but for some reason or the other, I could not go. That was all he said about it publicly, for some reason or the other. So the Maj can change, and that is why we should be, you know, roll with the punches, I guess you could say, and be aware that anything might happen that the protection that the master gives is not physical it's never guaranteed that we will be immune from things that happen to other people or that happen in the world although sometimes we are i mean that can happen but it is not a question of anything that we count on what we can count on is that the inner connection always remains before we through this morning i'll read um a little bit of what sanchi has said about that but the inner connection is always there and we know that whatever happens the point is we can grow from it which is the point i mean our fate karma is there we have to undergo what it contains we cannot change that but if we change how we deal with it how we relate to it how we cope with it then it can become such a great thing for us because we can become more than we were and what the master wants to do with us can happen. In spiritual elixir Master Kripal says that when the Lord wants to make a great poem of a man's life he sends him to the school of hard knocks, worries and privation. Okay, That this is when if bad things keep on happening to us, the point is that the Master is not wasting any time, okay? I mean, those things are in our karma. They wouldn't necessarily all happen at the same time if it weren't for the fact that he thinks we can deal with it and he wants to take us up fast. He does not want to waste time. So we don't know these things. but. We should remember, I mean, sometimes at initiation, I've mentioned at the very end, where Master says that these are my last instructions, respect my words more than my body, and like that. Um, that we, It's a very great mistake to think of the Master as a man sitting in India. He is with us constantly, at every second, <coughs> And he is helping us decide how to respond to everything that happens to us. If we want his help, we can have it. Once when I was leaving India in September 1973, I went to say goodbye to the master and he was busy in his room. And he said to me, if you let me, I'll go all along with you. If you let me, I'll go all along with you. And that was, that's a promise. But we do have, we can prevent it. Because what, what is absolutely in our control, always and at all times, is the direction of our attention. That is what the Surat Shabbad Yoga is all about. The yoga of the attention. Surat, S-U-R-A-T in English letters is Master Kripal and all the masters on this path have defined that as attention. It is the expression of our soul. We have the option of directing it any which way. And it is not always in our control, but usually it is. Ultimately it always is, but sometimes in the heat of the moment or something, it does become difficult for us to keep our attention where it ought to be. But most of the time this is our choice. We decide where our attention is going to be aimed. And if uh, we let him we will see that the master is right there with us. The times in my life when I have not let him are the times when I have wondered, where is he? Where is the master? Master, where are you? I've said like that. I've gotten angry at him because he wasn't there. You promised you'd be here. Where are you? And then I would realize afterwards, well, he was right with me, but I kept my back to him at all points. I insisted on looking exactly where he wasn't. And that's very easy to do. So all of this, the point is that we, we know that fear is the greatest sin, which considering the definition of the word sin that we have considered, is the, it's the biggest mistake we can make. It's the most missing of the point, the most misplacing of our attention, and it leads to the most complete forgetting when we are afraid we forget we forget that the master is with us we forget who we really are we forget everything we have learned because we are afraid and the fear of whatever we are afraid of looms over us and and takes us in its grip so that's why fear is the greatest sin because sin means all those things and that's what fear does to us there's a story also that Sanchi has told about, because another thing that people worry about, and I I do believe that this is very much included in the section from the Gospel that we read, another thing that people worry about is, you know, their own spiritual progress, how long it's going to take them, um, what is going to be involved, etc. And there is a story that Sanchi tells that I know many of you know about. It's actually a very ancient story from the Hindu tradition about two meditators sitting under a people tree. People, P-I-P-A-L. It's a tree that grows in India, very large, many, many branches, many, many leaves, which is significant. Anyway, the two meditators who have been sitting practicing meditation under the people tree for many years once saw Narada walking by. Narada is a figure out of Hindu tradition who was considered like the messenger of God. He went back and forth easily between the spiritual and the physical planes and he would often convey the point of view of one to the other, that was his function. He was not exactly a master, although he had many attributes of a master. Anyway, Narada walked by, and the meditators said to him that when he went to God next, would he ask them how long they were going to have to keep on meditating. They wanted to know when they might make it. They wanted to be enlightened. So Narada said that he would. And he went to God, and in God's presence... He told him about those two meditators, and he asked them, he conveyed their question, and he asked him what he should tell them. And according to the story, God said, well, you tell the first one that he will have to sit six more years. Okay. And the second one, you tell him to count the leaves of the people tree under which he is sitting, and that's the number of years that he will have to meditate. So Narada agreed with this, and he went back, and he went to the first one first because he thought that um, he would be very happy because, after all, six years is a very short period of time and uh, a very finite period. So he went to visit him in his hut, and uh, he told him straight out, um god said that you will have to meditate six more years and the meditator got furious six more years i've been sitting 12 years already and he wants me to sit six more what is this what kind of a deal is this and he got angry at narada and he beat him up and threw him out of his house so (coughs) narada was very shaken by that and he went off to find the other one and this time he was very cautious he refused to go in through the door, he stayed very near the door, and he though the guy was very polite to him and offered him tea. Narada took the tea, but he drank it uh, very um, with one eye over his shoulder, so to speak. And he hemmed and hawed and he was very afraid to tell him what God had said. But finally he said it, All right, God says that you should count the leaves of the people tree under which you are sitting and that's the number of years you have to meditate and the man was overjoyed he said oh thank god thank god thank you for conveying that to me he said at least i know that it's going to happen all right that's a very that's great he said that's just great and he got so happy at hearing that that he began dancing with joy and in his dancing he broke through and he had it then and the whole thing was short-circuited So Sanchi would tell that story to indicate the uselessness of thinking like that, okay? There is no way in which we can deal effectively with the universe by approaching it from a calculating, worrying kind of perspective. And this is over and over again in the writings and sayings of all the masters, including Buddha, including Jesus, including Rumi, including Kabir, including Swamiji and Sawan Singh and Kripal Singh and Ajaib Singh. Right? So we have to understand that. For one thing, we characterize things, okay? we label things according to the best we can do at the moment. But there is a famous story from the Chinese tradition eh, about a, a farmer and his son. And they were very dependent, of course, on their horses. And one day, their horses ran off. Mm -hmm. Well, whatever. I I prefer to think of it as horses. Their horses ran off, and the farmer said, um, people came and and condoled with him, and he said, um, how do I know it's bad luck? And then a short while later the horses came back with a great many other wild horses that the horses had found while they were out and brought them back to the farm. So everyone thought, oh, great, you know, what a wonderful fortune. So they, they uh, said, uh, you know, congratulations. And he said, how do I know it's good luck? And they um, went away, and his son was trying to tame the wild horses and in the course of which he got thrown from one of them and broke his leg. And of course the father was very dependent on him to do a lot of heavy work so it looked bad. And the people came and said, "Um, we're so sorry to hear this. And the father said, how do I know it's bad luck? And then a short while after that war broke out. Local warlords um, we're fighting each other. Every able-bodied young man in the countryside had to go, but the farmer's son couldn't go because his leg was broken. Now, that's where the story ends, but it obviously could keep going and going and going. We character, we label things good luck, bad luck, this is bad, that's good, if this happens, it'll be bad, if this happens, it'll be good. All of that is useless. We don't know. This is what the Masters are telling us. We don't know. And if we react in a certain way to anything, the power of our reaction can be such that we can alter the thing itself, as in the case of the guy who was so overjoyed at knowing that all he had to do was count the leaves under the people tree, and in that short span of time, which would have perhaps been thousands or maybe even millions of years he would be liberated. So it's it's like that, and uh, we have to face up to... This is really what is meant by surrender, you know, in a course of... of um, the idea of surrendering to a Master is a hard one for Westerners to grasp, even though it is a very central theme of the gospel. But uh, we think, that's sorry, because Jesus, after all, was in the body 2,000 years ago, and uh, you know, we grow up knowing that he was the great king of kings, etc. And so therefore it's easy to surrender to him, but we don't realize, we forget, that the people to whom he gave those instructions didn't have all that, you know. They were relating to someone who was there amongst them in exactly the same way that the Masters that we have been with have been there amongst us. And it was with exactly the same kind of, of um, fear or whatever that they would bring to that surrender. But basically, the point of surrender is being honest with ourselves as to how much we don't know. We think we know a whole ton of things that, in fact, we don't know. And then we turn that into absolute. We think we know something, we absolutize it, and then we are its prisoner. And we cannot get past it. But if we surrender to the Master, what we are saying is, all right, I trust you. I trust you to... Well, first of all, I trust that you are indeed a genuine reflection of the God power, okay? That the God power does work within you in the same way as it worked within Jesus and others. And um, I also trust that the teachings that all of the masters have given work. And I trust most of all, I see that I don't know. I don't know how to tell what is good luck and what is bad luck. Like the farmer in the story, I don't know. How do I know? I don't know. You know, it happens, and there it is, and we deal with what happens. My stroke, in fact, was not terribly bad luck. It taught me something that I would never have learned in a million years. Otherwise, although I don't know, If I would do, I mean, I still, I'm not making any guarantees that if it happened again, I would do any better. That's, that's not in our, we don't know that either, you know. I would like to read here a fairly substantial section from the book, Coming Spiritual Revolution, um... (coughs) to illustrate or to get across what the Master is conveying to us about our spiritual progress. This is called To Become a Satsangi, and it's actually a question-and-answer session at the end of Master's last talk in Louisville, Kentucky, in November 1963. Master, I have a question. Yes, please. I judge that the love you're talking about is a very positive, outgoing type of force or emotion or whatever you want to call it. Speaking for myself and perhaps for quite a few other members of this group, I find it very difficult to really love everybody. Very difficult. I find it possible to take a negative approach and maybe suspend my dislike of people. But if somebody wrongs me in my judgment, about the best I can do is, well, I won't dislike them. But as far as turning on a positive power of love, that is extremely difficult. And of course, in addition, it seems to me fair to say that there's a very marked temperamental difference between a scientific man with a scientific point of view who certainly is not so trained in the power of affection and love as a man, say, whose bent is toward politics. Then the only additional comment I have, if you want to call it a question, is this business of God-hunger. I'm afraid I, speaking for myself, and this is a moment of complete honesty, I'm afraid I don't hunger for God. I think that may be my trouble. That may be the reason why I'm not progressing any faster. I mean, God to me is a theoretically desirable person or force or state or condition or whatever. You look at it one way one day, another way the next. But I'm afraid I don't actually hunger for him. Hunger with all of my heart and soul. Can you suggest any practical means for people in my predicament that would speed us up? And Master said, yes. It is the grace of God that we have the human body. Out of millions of people, we may not have a very strong hunger, but we have made some choice, and by a little discrimination, we have considered that this is the right thing for us to do. It appeals to us. Out of millions of all those who are given up to the other things, how many have come this far? Those who have some inkling, even some slight thought, have it by discrimination or as a reaction of the past. Sometimes a man is born with this way of living and has it as a child. Others gain it by discrimination and by the company of those who have been on the way. If you want to be a doctor, then sit in the company of doctors. By their company, by radiation, by constantly living with them, you will naturally develop an interest, a hunger to be a doctor. Of course, this is another way of pointing out the idea of the spiritual revolution. This is another way of changing your angle of vision to that of the person like whom you want to become by being with people whose angle of vision is different naturally it becomes possible for us to share the same angle of vision some have had this as a child but generally when we come up we use the intellect we have to work by discrimination that is to discriminate right from wrong but when we get even a little thought for the mystery of life and what it is I consider that day to be the highest in a man's life, the greatest day in a man's life, because that question cannot be stamped out. If you stamp it out by being very busy in one way or another, that question will still be raked up. When God sees that, he makes some arrangement to bring you in contact somewhere where you are put on the way. Then further, company helps you discrimination and company and getting something to contact within. When you sit by ice, all heat will go. Naturally, when you come in more contact with this, your hunger will grow further still. And then more and more. The more you have of that taste, naturally it will result in your having more in comparison with others. As I said at the beginning of this talk, we are not made satsangis in one day. Rome was not built in a day. It is because we have some inkling of this that we are together here. Why are not thousands or millions of people living in the towns here? This is the fate of those who, by the grace of God, have had some inkling of this, and that inkling enables one to seek, either by discrimination or through literature or by company. He makes some arrangement, somehow or other, to bring him into contact somewhere where he can be put on the way to be put on the way as i told you does not make a man a satsangi we are on probation on the way the more we contact that god into expression power all qualities will become ours we are souls we have the same qualities as those of god but they have been hidden I mean, deep down you have that inkling and you have had some contact. The more you have a contact and the more you are in the company of those who are that way, the more your hunger flares up and becomes strong. This way is the only way. We cannot love everybody. That's right. If you have no hatred for others, you have improved. That is only if a man thinks evil of you. If you have no inkling like that, naturally it won't affect you it will go back and affect the very person from whom the thought emanated. You are saved. Love comes next. When you come in contact with God, as he resides in everyone, love will be developed. It is already ingrained in us, but if you have no hatred for others, I think this is on the way halfway to perfection. Then naturally you are saved from so much. With due deference, I quite appreciate this frankness. Really, we are on the way to it. That is why I suggest keeping the diaries. I quite see that a man does not become a satsangi in one day. We are called a satsangi. We have not become one so far. To become a satsangi, we have joined this thing. We have got something. If we go on earnestly like that, I think we will be overflowing with the love of God and also those with whom we come in contact. When you come in contact with some God-intoxicated man, with a man who is overflowing with God, the same intoxication is radiated to you. So we are all on the way to perfection. If we start that way, the day will come when we will reach our goal. At least something, either as a reaction of the past or by discrimination or by company, has come within us we are trying of course to go the flesh is strong but the spirit appears to be weak but it helps when we come in contact with it that is why I suggested to you to have group meetings and every morning after meditation take up some scriptures they will give you an impetus to be on the way to high on the way these are the helping factors if you are really after it The day will come when you will become like that. If you sit by a wrestler daily, you will begin to exert yourself. You cannot become as strong as a wrestler in one day, but in time, by regular practice, you will become like that. Every saint has his past and every sinner a future. There is hope for everybody. God help you, that's all. My best wishes are with you, that's all I can say. And I think I mean I was present when Master gave that answer, and I felt the the relevance of what he said with my own position was very obvious to me and I felt tremendous relief. Now I often forgot it. I've forgotten it many times. And there have been a great many times when I have been in despair over my lack of progress, over my, some mistake I have made, some obtuse thing I have done that I didn't realize until afterwards what, it was, what was really happening. I just didn't see it correctly. All kinds of things, many of which I have written about and talked about ad nauseum. But there it is. Um, they are... The point is that we all do that. We start where we are, and we get what we need, and we do make progress. We don't necessarily make progress the way we think we ought to, but how do we know it's good luck? How do we know it's bad luck? How do we know it's progress or not in many cases? I once, when I was in India in January, February 1972, I became aware of my... Sure, I had gone over in a very, um, I would say, self-satisfied way. Okay, I was sure that Master would be very pleased to see me, that I, I had um, really worked hard at what he had given me the last time I was gone. And when I got there, I wasn't there two days when everything blew up in my face, and I saw that it wasn't like that at all that I had blown everything, and I just, I sat in meditation hour after hour and wept and wept, and I just felt that I was completely and totally useless, that I had forgotten everything, and that Master had made a terrible mistake to take me as a disciple in the first place, and then to trust me with anything in the second. I finally got to see him, and I Conveyed all this to him, and he looked at me like I was uh, from outer space somewhere. And he said, "You've made progress." He said, "Man can't always tell." And I, I think we should remember this: um, that, in the first place, we can't compare with others. Okay, there is no comparison with others because everyone is in their own place, and it is not you know, it's easy, we make, we look at other people and at ourselves maybe, and we make judgments about where each of us are at and what something means, okay? And, you know, the Master gives to each person what that person needs in order to make the fastest and the most complete progress all around. And it varies enormously from person to person, and it does not follow that we always understand what it is he's doing. I mean, to make someone a representative, for example, I mean, I have been a representative of first Master Kripal and then for Sanchi for a very long time. And I am acutely aware that means absolutely nothing as far as what it says about my spiritual stature, okay? This, I mean, I've been acutely aware of that from the beginning, from 1967, which is when Master gave me that job and authorized me to initiate people, and I went through all kinds of things about how I, you know, was not up to this, how I wouldn't be able to handle it, how I, so what mistake is being made here? I mean, this alternated rapidly with uh, feelings of great elation, you understand. that Oh, wow, this is a great thing, and I, I appreciate this, etc., etc. I mean, they just both were there. And finally, I realized, Master does not give people jobs to reward them for being great. He gives them jobs because that's what they need. And the person who is given any job, any seva whatsoever in the Master's work, is given that for his or her sake. Okay. It is a great gift that the master is giving them to bring them closer to him. But if someone else doesn't get that job, it means they don't need it as badly. Okay. So all thoughts like this, you know, so-and-so is representative, so-and-so is very close to the master, uh, they must be really you know, great people well they may be great people I'm not saying that they never are but the point is that that's not we can't count on that and Master has his reasons you know there's a famous story of Guru Nanak and Mardana who were walking in uh, India in actually what is now Pakistan and Mardana was very thirsty and they came they were near a place where um, a guy named uh Oh dear. Um, yes. Kali Vandi Vali Kandari. Vali Kandari. Vali Kandari. Vali Kandari. Absolutely right. Thank you D. Vali Kandari um was living a very arrogant he was a Sufi holy man so called but he was, and he had a lot of power like the guy I mentioned last night but he was very arrogant and he had the only he controlled the only water for miles around was a pond up at the top of a hill where his house was and anyone who came there the condition he would let them drink water on condition that they become his disciple if they didn't become his disciple he didn't give them any water so they were walking along and Mardana was mentioning how thirsty he was and Guru Nanak told him that there was this pond up there and he should go up there and ask permission and drink from it so Mardana climbed the hill and he knocked on the door and Vali Kandari said yes. And he explained that he was very thirsty. And Vali Kandari said, um, uh, well, you know my condition. Of course, Mardana didn't know his condition because they were strangers in the area. But anyway, he said, you know my condition. If you become my disciple, you can drink the water. And Mardana was astonished. He said, your disciple? Why do I want to become your disciple? I'm already a disciple of Guru Nanak. and he is the greatest uh, Satguru in the world. I don't need anyone else. (coughs) And Vali Kandari said, in that case you can't have any water, and he slammed the door. So Mardana went back down to Guru Nanak, and he was very annoyed, and he he told him what happened, and Guru Nanak said, well, Mardana-ji, you know, maybe he'll change his mind. There's really no other water around here, and if you want water... (coughs) <coughs> You've got to go up and ask him. <coughs> so Mardana very annoyedly trudged back up the hill and tried again. And Valikandari said, no, you can have the water if you become my disciple. And for that matter, your master has to become my disciple too. And Mardana said, he said, when he went back down, he said, master, I can't, I can't do anything with that egotist. He said, you, I just can't do it. And Guru Nanak said, all right. And he worked it, he used his power, and he brought the water from the pond. He worked it in such a way that the water flowed down the hill to where they were and drained the pond so that the pond became empty. And Vali realized what was happening, and he went into a towering rage. And because he really was a man of a lot of power... He used his power and he knocked a boulder that was on top of the hill down so that it fell down the mountain in such a way that it would have crushed both Guru Nanak and Mardana. And Guru Nanak saw it coming and put up his hand to stop it, and he did. He stopped it with his hand, and in effect he caught it. And the boulder is still there, and there are five fingerprints on the marks on the boulder that exactly look like the thumb and forefingers of a hand, and it is a great place of Sikh pilgrimage. Um, master Kripal has mentioned this in his book on Baba Jamal Singh, because Baba Jamal Singh visited this place during his search for a master, and uh, Sanchi has also mentioned this. Both both Master and Sanchi had been there and seen the place, seen the rock. Anyway, there's the rock. Lying there, and the water in the pond is all gone, so uh the story goes that Guru nanak um, at this point, Valikandari Kandari repented, okay, and he begged uh Guru Nanak to have pity on him. He saw that he really was outmatched, and uh it is said that Sanchi explains when he tells the story, Guru Nanak had pity on him, gave him initiation and made him his representative in the area. And this is what I'm getting at, of course, that uh, that was what was in valley kandari's best interest. And I, I, when I first read this, I thought, my God, he punished him by giving him the mystery, solving the mystery of life for him, and then by making him his representative. And um, <laughs> if you think about it, this is really a bizarre turn of events. But, in fact, Sanchi tells the story very matter-of-factly. I mean, it seems, from his point of view, it seems like a very logical thing to do. So, I mean, we should, when we're thinking about others, you know, and about ourselves for that matter, we should keep this kind of perspective in mind. We don't know, but this we do know, that the Master treats each one of us in the way that is best suited to our own spiritual growth. He gives us what we need. He wants to take us up. This is what he came down for. He wants to forgive us for what we have done wrong. He wants to forget about it. He wants to love us and to share that love with us so that we can love not only him, but everyone around us also. And he wants to take us home. He wants to give us that which in our heart of hearts we want more than anything else in all the world that's his desire is to give us that, that which we have yearned for and longed for and missed and not known what it was. That is what the Master is aching, I would say, to give us, because that is what the Master is in existence to do. It is his job, you can say, it is his function to forgive and to take us home. He has come for that purpose, and What he does with us, however he deals with us, is meant for that. And those to whom he gives a lot, to whom he gives a lot, need a lot. If someone is being given a lot by the Master, maybe outer, maybe inner, we can assume, we can rest assured that they need it. If we don't feel that we have been given as much by the Master, okay, we don't need it as much. Uh, And this is the absolute truth. I mean, this is not a a soporific that I'm telling people. This is the way the Master works. Those who need a lot get a lot. Those who need less get less. He's very economical with what he gives out. And in the long run, it will all even out, and we will see how each of us, some of us have been helped in this way some of us have been helped in that way like that so it's a great great thing that the Master is doing for us he's continuing to do it it doesn't stop because he has left the physical body the continuing on of the work in some ways is necessarily halted for a while not necessarily for very long but um, the work of the master with each one of us is continuing and I want to close by reading uh, not in here Here this is the um, the last part of the farewell talk which Sanchi gave to us who were in the February group of last winter. And it was the last talk in the group and it was the last talk of the masters that Judith and I were present to hear. And um, it's. I think that it's vitally important that everyone... Remember what the Master says here because it is one of his last words. He said, I'm not going to read the whole talk. This is roughly the last half. So, dear ones, I enjoyed meditating with all of you this past week. You know that the relationship of the Master with the disciple is made by God Almighty himself and it cannot be broken. No power, no one, Can break the relationship which has been formed between the disciple and the master. It is not that after you leave from here the relationship is over. Now, as will be obvious a little further along, uh, the master is saying this in full knowledge that he is going to be leaving the physical world, and we should take it as such. That relationship is absolutely inviolable, it cannot be broken. Guru Nanak Sahib says the true relationship never breaks because the creator himself has made this relationship. So the masters always remember their disciples. Guru Nanak Sahib said that there are only two powers which do not forget anything. One is God Almighty and the other is the master. Everything else is forgetful But the Master and God Almighty are not the forgetful ones. After giving us the initiation, they never forget us. What to talk about forgetting us? They never even go away from us. They are always with us. They are always looking at us. And they always take care of us. Just as the mother takes care of her child in the same way, the Masters always take care of their disciples. Guru Gobind Singh has said that all masters always make prayers. They always request to Lord Almighty for the well-being of their disciples. Guru Gobind Singh has said, O Lord, may all my disciples live in comfort and peace, all the disciples, all my family members. They understand all the initiates whom they have initiated as their family members, and that's why they always request... They always pray to God Almighty. They are my family members, and I wish, I pray for them, that whatever time they may live in this world, they may live comfortably and happily, and also that they may do the meditation of Shabad Nam, so that they may return to their real home. There was a dear one of Swamiji Maharaj who used to go to have his darshan once every month. When his time came near, when Swamiji's time came near, that is, Swamiji Maharaj said to him, Dear one, you should have the darshan of the Master in abundance and dwell on this form of the Master within you because next month I will not be able to meet you. So it was his grace that he made him realize that he should have the darshan of the Master. So, dear ones, in the same way, This is also the grace of Lord Sawan and Kripal, that God gives us so many opportunities to meet with each other. Again and again he is bringing you here. Again and again he is making me meet you. And again and again he is giving us the opportunities to do the meditation, to do the bhajan and simran. We will not get these blessed opportunities again. We will not get such grace again. So whatever time we have got, we should always appreciate it. Appreciate these trips, appreciate this opportunity, and dwell on the form of the Master within, and do Bhajan and Simran wholeheartedly. You know the condition of the roads in India, and especially in the place where I live, Rajasthan, the roads are terrible there. But still in this old age, carrying this old body, You know with how much difficulty I make this journey. I travel from so far and come here. So appreciate my coming here. Appreciate the time which is spent here. My work is only this, that you may wake up and you may do your bhajan and simran. When the dear ones come in the darshan and tell me about their experiences, that gives me immense pleasure. Dear ones, I have done the meditation in my life. I have suffered a great amount of hunger and thirst. I know the reason why my body is so weak. Since I gave up eating food for a very long time, that is why my food intake has been reduced, and still I am not able to eat very much. And you know that when you cannot eat enough food, when you cannot eat enough fruit and other things, And the life goes on only on the support of God Almighty. The meaning of saying this is that this relationship is very solid. It will never break. This is the reason that all the masters, all the saints, have said of their masters, You are my mother. You are my father. You are my brother. You are my friend. You are everything. So, dear ones, this is an unbreakable relationship, and you should appreciate this. Now there is no more time to sleep. This is the time to wake up. So appreciate this time, and make the best use of this time. Do not misunderstand my words. Don't think that I'm saying, give up your relationship with your wife or your husband, or give up your homes, give up your families. I don't mean to say that. What I mean to say is that you should become sannyasis. You should become detached from all these things from within. You should do your meditation so much that you may go within and reach that place after reaching which all the desires come to an end. I would like to remind all the dear ones of the words of beloved Lord Kripal. He used to say, give up hundreds of important works to attend satsang and give up thousands of important works to sit for meditation. He also used to say, do not feed your body until you have fed your soul. The food for our body is the food which we eat, but the food for our soul is meditation. I wish all the dear ones all the best for your return journey. I hope and pray that all of you may return to your homes safely and happily. When you go back to your homes, please convey my much, much love to the dear ones, all the family members, because they are also as dear to me as you are. So please convey my love to all the dear ones, all the family members. And the work, the jobs that you have left for coming here, I hope that you will go back to those jobs and that you will also attend to the worldly responsibilities which you have got. And along with that, I hope you will do your bhajan and simran regularly and wholeheartedly, and you will attend the satsang. And also you should keep the diary. You must keep the diary. Regarding the diary, I always say that you should not make the filling of the diary as a rite and ritual. Once you have written down a mistake... Once you have noted down that you have made this fault, you should not repeat that again. Because, as I have often said, even one sin, one mistake which we make, makes our life very dry. So if you go on repeating the mistakes, if you go on filling up the diary form with all the mistakes, just imagine how much dryness will be created in our within in our soul and how much dirt of the karmas our soul will accumulate. So that is why when you fill out the diary, whenever you realize that you have made a mistake, do not repeat it again. Make your life pure. And with that I think I will close. Talked a long time and I we will be leaving very soon. I'm grateful to the Master for giving us this opportunity to be with you people. Very sweet, very great sweetness here. And both Judith and I have appreciated it and felt it. So, God bless us all. It's where I'm at.